hello. Hey, so last week when Jeremiah was announced by the video, there was like a cheer. And this time I had Jack just, you know. So thank you. Thank you so much for soothing my ego and <laughs> doing that. I appreciate it. I promise that's not part of my message. Don't start the timer yet, guys. Um, look, my name is Andy. I am the digital communications director at, 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 here at Crossroads. And each weekend, typically I'm upstairs in this room and I'm hosting our online services. So I do want to take a moment and just say hi to everybody that's joining us online. I know there's quite a few people that join us each week, we are developing relationships there. I know I've already seen Doug. I know Kyle is there hosting. I've had Miranda a lot of times will join us at 11. There's quite a few kind of regulars, Jan and quite a few others. And I want to make sure I say hi to all of you that have joined us online and let you know how much I appreciate you doing that each week. Uh, this week, like I said, Kyle Miles, he's upstairs. He's handling those hosting duties. He's chatting with everybody that's joining us online. If you get a chance, if you're online, say hi to Kyle there, okay? Now, today I'm going to be chairing from Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to be reading verses or studying from verses 18 through 39. And when I began studying this text, um, certain words on the page kind of leapt out at me. And, and others, as I read through it and looked at it closely, kind of made me pause and, and just kind of wonder, like, what was Paul thinking? Why is that in there? See, this section of Scripture, um, the last half of Romans 8, is Paul recapping everything he's written up to this point and kind of building a bridge into the next portion of his letter. So, but the point of this is to provide the people in the Roman church with comfort, with hope and security as they continued on, okay? So I read some of these words. I saw, oh, well, I can see where that would bring comfort. But others, I, I, didn't, I didn't quite get. So I began to look more deeply, actually, into the context of the letter. I, I wondered, you know, what was the city of Rome like for those living in the first century, for the intended audience of this letter? What images would come into their minds when they heard or saw these words and phrases that Paul used in his letter? And then the next question for me, of course, is, you know, how do we apply this today in our life and, and in our culture? Now, the people that make up our mobilization team will tell you, you know, in order to effectively communicate with a community, to serve a community, to be on mission, you've got to really understand the culture of the people and of those that you're trying to communicate with, right? It's especially important to know how specific words or phrases that you use in your communication might trigger responses in that intended audience. So for an example of how descriptive keywords can vary based on culture, I've built a couple slides here that we can use from my world of web advertising, okay? So on the web, advertisers pay to have their ads served when certain keywords are typed into, you know, like the Google search engine or Bing, depending on, on who you are and how accurate you want your information to be. <laughs> now, a marketing specialist for a cola company trying to sell products in Detroit would pay to have their ads appear when the keyword pop is entered into a search query. If the same marketing specialist were to advertise in LA, they would use the word soda. And then if they were to be advertising in Atlanta, they would use the word Coke. Doesn't matter if they're selling Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, RC-Cola, Ski, whatever your favorite carbonated beverage is, in Atlanta, it's all Coke, all right? But companies pay marketing specialists, you know, millions of dollars each year for this kind of knowledge and expertise. And as we study Paul's letter to the Romans, 
it's important for us to know that Paul was an expert in knowing which keywords or phrases to use when he was communicating with particular people groups there around the periphery of the Mediterranean Sea. He knew exactly what images would come to mind when he said certain things in his letters as a legal expert and an experienced missionary. You got to realize that by the time Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, he had been a missionary for 20 years. He was in the middle of his third missions journey, right? And Romans was actually his sixth letter that he wrote. Seems kind of weird because it's the first letter we see when we're reading the New Testament. But that's because Paul's letters really, if you look at how they're organized in the New Testament, they're mostly there in order of length. And Romans is the longest one. So it's first. It has a lot of theological depth within it though. So I'm glad that it got the placement that it did. So one of the keywords though, that Paul used in this letter and in others' letters that he wrote was euangelion. Now we interpret euangelion as the word gospel. Um, in other places, we see it as good news, right? But in ancient Rome, when Roman generals had conquered a new territory, runners would carry this euangelion, the news of the victory and the benefits that it would bring throughout the Roman empire. So a euangelion was news of victory, of peace, of comfort, right? Of security for the people that it was declared to. It's so much more than just simple good news. Today, we hear the phrase good news, and we think, honestly, that it's just anything that's not bad news, right? I mean, if we haven't heard bad news, we're like, whew, it's a good day, right? But the euangelion is actually more than that. It's a declaration of victory. So when Paul used this keyword euangelion to describe the message that he wanted to declare to the people in Rome, these people would have had a cultural understanding of what he meant. They knew that he was declaring a victory message. When Paul said in the first part of his letter, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, they knew that he meant that he wasn't afraid to stand up right there in the city of conquerors and declare victory for the kingdom of God. They understood he was declaring hope, security, and freedom for the members of God's conquering kingdom. And then today, we can draw comfort from that same phrase as Paul's words reassure us that as members of God's kingdom, God will take care of us. And through the victorious work of Jesus Christ, he guarantees us hope, health, security, and confidence in our future in ways that our own government cannot. Now, another example of keywords that would stand out to the people of Rome it's found in a portion of scripture that Jeremiah taught from last week. So if you go to Romans chapter eight and verse 17, the verse just preceding where we're gonna be for the rest of the day, he says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So in this verse, those two words that I want you to key in on are heirs and co-heirs. See, in the minds of the Romans, they would most likely picture their emperors and the struggles within their, ro their royal family. See, just three years before this letter was written, um, the emperor Nero took the throne. The way he did this is that his mother killed her husband. Her husband was Claudius. Claudius is mentioned in Acts chapter 18. Nero's mom killed him, right? So immediately Nero turns around and he kills his mother. First, he tries to have her drowned. That doesn't work. So then he sends assassins after her and has her killed. Then Nero turns around and he's got a co-heir named Britannicus. 
Well, rather than have the competition of Britannicus, he has him poisoned and killed. So this might be the image that the Romans would have in their mind when they hear these two words, heirs and co-heirs. They might picture these men and women that scrabbled for power, killing off their competition to try to preserve their space at what they thought was the top of the heap so they could contrast that picture with the one that Paul presents of an eternal ruler, right? God that selected us as his heirs and a co-heir for us that is a loving brother in Jesus Christ. That's quite a contrast. And now for us, because of the living nature of God's word, we can see ourselves and our own culture within this text. In our world today, we see political and world leaders scrabbling for power at any cost. We see them really stabbing their fellow countrymen in the back in order to separate them from their inheritance or their place of power. But we can find strength and confidence in a God that rules eternally. And we're gonna see today that our inheritance cannot be taken away from us. So please, if you haven't yet, open your Bibles to Romans chapter eight, verses 18 through 39. As we read the text, what I'm gonna do today is I'm gonna pull out some keywords or phrases that Paul specifically put in place in order to draw clear images for his audience. So if we were in the first century to enter a search query for the phrases, hope for the future, where can I find security, or what is my purpose, right? Then Paul has seeded this text with keywords so that it would pop up first in our search results. Now, John Piper points out that the first part of this passage includes three great promises of God And we're gonna cover all three of those this morning. The first is simple. Hope sustains us in suffering. At Romans 8, verse 18, Paul starts off with this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And it's funny because that word consider that Paul uses there, uh, when we read it in the NIV, it doesn't carry quite the same weight as the word that Paul would have originally used. When we hear the word consider today, we kind of think uh, that's how we think something is, right? It's almost like an opinion or a subjective computation. But, but Paul says that what he does is he uses a logical computation. He uses math to see this. In his book, The Normal Christian Life, Watchman Nee points out that this word that is in the KJV, it's rendered as reckon. Reckon is, is doing math. And, and Watchman Nee says that arithmetic is the only thing that human beings can do perfectly. It's completely objective. It's literally just lining up facts and then adding or subtracting them in ways that are consistent. And it doesn't matter where in the world you are. Two plus two always equals four. So Paul says in this verse, I've pulled, I've pulled out the ledger book. And no matter how I add it up, there is a massive imbalance here. Paul says, no matter how great our suffering is here on earth, it's not worth comparing even to the glory that's yet to be revealed in us. And this is a vital truth. And we've got to speak it to ourselves. and We've got to speak it to each other so that when we're in the midst of suffering, we can have this word so deeply planted in our heart that it's encouraging to us, that it provides strength to us. And then at the same time, we've got to remember this verse, it does contain great promise, but we've got to be very careful not to use it to minimize the suffering or the circumstances that someone else might be going through at this very moment. When someone is suffering, 
as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should come alongside them and empathize with them. Let them know that we know their pain is real and that we're truly sorry that they're suffering. Then we encourage them, right? By pointing them to God's character, to what we know to be true about him. We've got to remember this. In Romans chapter five, we saw that through God, we can find joy in the midst of our suffering. What that doesn't say is that we would enjoy suffering. This scripture, it doesn't remove the pain of our suffering in the here and now, but what it does is it provides perspective as it points towards a hopeful and even glorious outcome for God's children on the other side of that suffering. And then as we read on, we see that this glorious outcome is actually yet to be revealed in us. In verse 19, it says, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And that section right there starts with a phrase that says, for the creation waits in eager expectation. And isn't it interesting that as much of us as humanity, as we look towards or we worship created things instead of the creator, that all of creation instead is wise enough to look with its head raised, right? Looking in eager anticipation for the revelation of us as God's children and the full realization, right, of God's kingdom. Unfortunately, though, all of creation is actually waiting in anticipation because of the sins of humanity. As we sang about that earlier, there's so many lyrics in these songs today that talked about creation groaning. And and in the nine o'clock service, I was literally crying as I thought about this passage. The problem with this is that creation is groaning. It's waiting in anticipation because of the sins of humanity. Throughout the book of Romans, Paul speaks of how God alone can break us free from our slavery to sin. And right here, he's reminding us that the entire world, all of creation, suffers under the weight of that bondage right along with us. Since the first chapter of Genesis, all of creation's destiny has been completely intertwined with ours, right? Creation is so eager to be freed from its bondage that it's groaning in the pains of childbirth. It's just like a young couple waiting for their first child. It, it's, it's waiting and it's expectant for what's going to be a wonderful outcome. And then in verse 23, we see that we are waiting and groaning in anticipation as well. So while we've received the first fruits of our inheritance, that initial deposit of salvation, justification, and the Holy Spirit, we have yet to experience the full benefits of our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. Now, the Romans hearing this in the first century, would have heard that phrase, adoption to sonship. And they would have known that it meant that we would be fully recognized as heirs to the kingdom. They had seen their emperors name heir after heir. They literally adopted son after son to follow them in their place as emperor of the Roman empire. The problem is the mortality rate for these guys that were named to be heirs of the kingdom was incredibly high. The number of broken branches on this family tree is amazing. You you wouldn't believe it. But Paul says that for us, we can look forward to our inheritance 
including the redemption of our bodies, eagerly. You might wonder, you know, what does Paul mean when he says here by the redemption of our bodies? So in Philippians 3, we see another example of Paul speaking about this very thing. And I think it clears up just a little bit. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. See, upon Christ's return, our bodies will be redeemed. We will receive bodies like his and they'll no longer be subject to death or decay. And then Paul affirms that there's still more to come for us in verses 24 and 25. He says, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Boy, the word hope pops up in there a lot. It sounds like that the dichotomy from earlier that Phil taught on a couple weeks ago with all the do's and I don't do what I want to do almost, right? But to simplify this, it's very simple. It's just Paul is saying here that if we had already received our inheritance in its entirety, then we would have nothing more to hope for. But thank God, this is not the case. There is hope to be found and it's hope that greatly outweighs our suffering. And the fact that as God's children, there is still so much more that's yet to come. And then as we continue reading, it says, in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So we've seen already that creation groans as in the pains of childbirth, right? And then we've seen that we join in and we groan together with it as we await our full inheritance. And then in this passage, we see that the Holy Spirit groans in intercession for us. And that's the second of the three great promises found here in our passage. It's the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. See, as a parent, I've seen my own kids suffer pain and go through heartache. When they were young, it felt like it was a little simpler. It was easier to identify the problems, right? When they were young, if they smashed their finger, they would cry out, you know, hey, I smashed my finger. Or well, it'd be like, ah, my finger, my finger. Uh, If their stomach hurt because they'd eaten something wrong or whatever, they would cry out, hey, Daddy, my stomach hurts. But as they become older, the things that cause them pain are more internal or relational, typically. Uh, Their pain becomes more personal. It actually becomes more private. It becomes more and more difficult for me to get them to speak to me and let me know what's in their heart, the things that are really troubling them. Sometimes it's because maybe they're reluctant. Sometimes they really just don't know how to express their pain to me. So, As our father, I'm reduced to asking a a bunch of questions, right? Or just trying to read their body language. Sometimes I just go ahead and try to preemptively treat what I think might be the cause of their pain. And honestly, I'm, I'm not very good at it. Thank God my wife is so much better at that than I am, you know, but um, often I, I do completely miss the mark when it comes to doing that. But God sees that same phenomenon in us as his children. And God has the perfect solution. Here we have a picture of a God. This is our father that searches our hearts. He's placed his Holy Spirit in us to provide direction, right? But he's also there to determine our needs, our motives, and our deepest desires. God speaks with his spirit and they both speak the same language, knowing 
that God is working together with his spirit that's inside us, not just guiding us, but also gauging our health, taking down all of our vital signs and working with God to meet our true needs in accordance with his will is a great source of comfort. It should be a great source of strength for every one of us that calls him Lord. So that's the second of those three great promises found in this portion of scripture, right? And then the third is found in this next few verses. In Romans 8, 28, it says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And that third great promise that sums up all of that is real simple. It's just four words. God has a plan, okay? Now there's a bunch of key phrases in those verses that I just read that I wanna go back and I wanna touch on. First is this phrase, in all things, right? See, it's not a coincidence that this follows Paul's encouragement about our suffering, right? See, suffering is included within all things. Paul has a habit of asking rhetorical questions. I thought I'd ask one of my own. What could be excluded from all things, you might ask? Nothing right? And then that word in is important as well because it shows that God is there during or throughout the all things. And the next phrase I want to call your attention to is for the good of those who love him. And one of the commentaries I read on this passage pointed out that this verse says for the good and not for the happiness of those that love him. We've, we've got to remember hard times are real. Hard times will come to God's children as well as come to those that reject God. Happiness is fleeting, but the good that God works is eternal. And then this is one of those places really where Paul, he doesn't back down or away from a hard truth. See, God's not working things for the good of those that reject him. People that reject God desperately try to work things to their advantage for their good. At times, it may even seem like they're succeeding in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about how the sun shines on the righteous and on the unrighteous. He talks about how the rain falls on the just and on the unjust. But then in Matthew 13, we see that ultimately for a person that has a lifelong rejection of God, this guarantees for them a terrible outcome. Jesus says, those who do evil will be thrown into a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Paul describes those who love God as those who have been called according to his purpose. And called is another one of those key words, right? See, called is important. Called is so much more than just a simple invitation. An invitation is what we as ministers do at the end of the service when we ask if there are people that would need prayer, that would like to respond to, you know, the invitation of, of Jesus Christ being their Lord and Savior. But here's the thing. To be called by God is what happens when his spirit prompts and empowers you to accept that invitation, to have faith, to believe and acknowledge that belief in Jesus Christ and, to, and, and then also to commit to him as your Lord. Calling actually denotes a choosing on the part of God and that should create comfort in those of us that have been called, correct? And then this next phrase is according to his purpose. And then his purpose 
is spelled out here in the next two sentences. Uh, that next sentence starts with the word for. And for in this sentence is Paul saying because, or, or let me explain. He's saying, let me explain. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So let's look carefully at what Paul is saying here, because to be honest, this is part of this passage that really gave me trouble as I first read it. Because when I read about foreknowledge and predestination, the initial thing that comes up in my mind is free will. And I think, man, these two things either limit or completely eliminate my free will. I thought, why is my choice important at all if God is already using me to complete his plan? And then the other day, as I was studying and I was listening to other uh, ministers speak on this, one of those was Tim Keller. And I, I love Tim Keller. His writings are incredibly rich, incredibly deep. Um, his sermons uh, can, be, can be a little bit dry, I'll say, right? But, but he's an awesome, awesome man of God. So as, as I nodded off listening to Pastor Keller, <laughs> I heard this phrase that really stood out to me. He said, why is it difficult for us to understand that an infinitely powerful God may work in ways that we can't quite grasp, that God can grant us free will, but also know our decisions in advance and work them into his grand plan. And it's this type of acceptance. This, it reminded me of something that my dad used to say to me as well, because, you know, he really didn't have an answer, did he? And, and I would ask questions like this to my dad, and my dad would say things like, hey, you know what, Andy, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, hang on to that one until you get to heaven. And then if it's still important to you when you get there, you can ask God yourself, because I don't know. <laughs> and I think that what's really important for us in this passage is to understand why Paul uses these words specifically. Remember, we're talking about an expert and selecting keywords to get his point across. These are words carefully selected with specific intent. And that intent is not to cause discomfort, but, but really quite the opposite, right? These words were here to provide comfort, confidence, and strength. So when Paul uses that word for new, he's basically saying that God knows already in advance the people that love or that will love him. In fact, when you look at what it means when God knows somebody throughout the Bible, there's an intimacy there that we might accidentally miss, right? Uh, when we hear no, we might almost think of that like, oh, it's a Facebook friend, you know? Yeah, I know them, <laughs> you know? But we're talking about intimate knowledge here. Again, we could use the word chose here, that God chose that person. And, and then when Paul says, that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. He's saying that these people have a purpose and that it's to become like Christ, right? Sounds familiar. It sounds like a vision statement that might be on our walls outside here of the worship center, right? <laughs> Live and love like Christ. We didn't come up with that on our own, right? It's scriptural. Uh, we're becoming conformed to the image of Christ. And this is in life. It's in death and it's in resurrection, Earlier in the book of Romans, Paul covers all of this. And then that way, he says, Jesus will have many brothers and sisters or co-heirs with him, right? Um, these people that he predestined to be conformed to Christ's image, those who love him, he called. When you answer God's call, you're justified. Your sin and the penalty you must pay, spiritual death, are removed. They're done, they're done away with. And it also says, you are glorified. 
you're immediately given the first fruits of adoption to sonship and eventually redemption of your body. So those that are called according to God's purpose, those that love him are all part of God's plan. He's working all things to their good. They're becoming more and more like Jesus. And this goes so far beyond good news. This is a message of victory. This is a euangelion. This is a gospel. This is great news. It's comforting. We can see that it's a great promise of God. God has a plan, and as his children, we're part of it. When we look at history, it might be easy to get the impression that history just kind of runs in endless cycles, constantly repeating itself. But these verses tell us that all of history, everything, falls within God's plan, and it's all working towards an ultimate climax. These verses show us that for a child of God, this is good, and life has hope, it has meaning, and it has purpose. And then as we continue to read, Paul recaps what he said with some of those rhetorical questions that I mentioned earlier. He starts off with simply, what then shall we say in response to these things? Remember that these things is the knowledge that God has had since the beginning of time, a plan for salvation, adoption, justification, redemption, and glorification. And we all as his children are part of that plan. And then he continues, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Now here, just as he did earlier in the book of Romans, Paul is painting the picture of a legal proceeding. And the Romans might've had a picture in their minds of the trials that they had seen in their day, set up by Roman emperors to eliminate their rivals. What they would do is these emperors would act as judge and jury and they would immediately order death sentences for anybody they saw as an obstacle. They would eliminate entire families. But in our case, God is that one that's sitting in that ultimate seat of power. And Paul says, right after us, he says, it's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So the only person with the real authority to bring accusations against us is Jesus Christ, our co-heir and our brother. But that's the one, he's the man that's sitting right next to God and pleading our case. God sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ and his intercession. Contrast this with the picture that the Romans would have had of their emperor, Nero, who had just killed his co-heir. And then Paul goes on and asks the big question. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written for your sake, We face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And and then Paul has a response to that question. And it goes so far past the earlier no, no one, and absolutely not that we've seen in other parts of the book of Romans. Instead, he responds with what's really one of the most beautiful encouragements in all of scripture. It's what some uh, theologians, what some scholars actually think of as the high point of the New Testament. And today I'm calling this our bonus promise. I told you there was only three Well, today it's like buy three, get one free. You get a bonus promise today, all right? Um, Here's what he says in verse 37. He says, no, 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there in that passage, Paul says, especially to that church in Rome, right? We are greater than all the heroes of the Roman Empire. We are more than conquerors because not the life you've lived, the death you die, no spirit being, no government or other created power, nothing in the dimensions of time and space, nothing in all of creation, many of these same things that separated Roman emperors and their heirs from power or their inheritance in the first century can separate us from the love of God that is to be found in Christ Jesus. So not only is God working everything to the good of those that love him, but nothing, none of the circumstances that I just mentioned, no suffering that you may be familiar with, any other circumstances you might be familiar with, not death, not sin, not divorce, not illness, not a negative thought, a misspoken word, whether it's something that seems as good as a lottery win or as devastating as a real estate loss, none of that, nothing can separate us from God's love. And that's the reassurance in Romans chapter eight. That, that is specifically what makes this the high point of Paul's writing. It makes this passage one of the most beautiful in all of scripture. And then we have to ask ourselves, amen, how, how do we respond to this? We have all this encouragement, right? We've got all these beautiful words that describe God's great promises to his children. How do we today take this from head knowledge and turn it into application? Well, a few years ago in Indianapolis, there was a conference um, for the Gospel Coalition. And in one of the breakout sessions, there was a lady named Trillian Newbill. And she taught a session called The Good News of Romans 8. And her two takeaways are the ones I'm going to borrow and use today. First takeaway is preach these truths to your heart. Some would say, preach the gospel to yourself. Do this in all things and at all times. We have to completely internalize this message of victory. So whether we're uh, pricked by a pen, sliced by a knife, stabbed by a sword in, in the back, if you're a Roman emperor, right? We've got to bleed the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul sent these words to the Romans, not just to educate them, but to comfort, encourage, and also to strengthen them. In times of suffering, we've got to remember these words that Paul wrote to the Romans. The next thing we need to do is we need to preach these truths to everyone. Now, the guys, the heralds I told you about that carried the euangelion around the Roman Empire, they would have been called euangelistes. Now, in Latin, that term is a little more uh, common to us. It's evangelists. Every one of us needs to be an evangelist, carrying the good news throughout the world, right? And that says everyone. That means to our brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as those that are outside of the church. Why would we speak it to our brothers and sisters in Christ? Why did Paul speak it? We would want to comfort, encourage, and strengthen one another. That's our role. We are called to be evangelists of the gospel. We're called to carry it, not to be ashamed of it, but to carry it into all the world. Now, 
as God's children, there are some truths that we must declare. And we're gonna put those on the screen here. As God's children, we can have absolute confidence. First, that our hope far outweighs our suffering. That's the promise of hope that was found today. Second, that his spirit and his son intercede for us. That's the promise of help. Third, God has a plan and it will not be derailed. As we're conformed to the image of Christ, we can have absolute confidence that everything that happens to us is ultimately in our best interest. That was that promise of purpose. And then fourth, and this just kind of locks it in for us, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from his love. And that's the promise of security. I wanna go ahead and I just wanna pray to close out today, all right? If you would, bow your heads and pray with me. Father God, thank you so much. Thank you for the hope, the help, the purpose, and the security that you provide us as God's children. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel that we get to carry with us throughout the week into our work week, into our families and beyond. God, give us the strength. Give us the words to use, the, 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 the actions that we can live out to actually live out this gospel, this good news here in our community and around the world. Father God, thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen.